Hi, this is Ikim. Hi, this is Katrina. Welcome to High Impact Coffee Hour, where you can listen to two psychology nerds chat with academics about philosophy, feminism, and science. Hey, this is Ikim. And I'm Katrina. Right. 
uh, we're measuring fibrous cortisol levels and we're looking at changing cortisol over time. There have been very, very few studies that have really looked longitudinally at parent hormones, um, at mom's hormones, at dad's hormones, but particularly fathers have been neglected in those groups. So there's been a couple of studies that have suggested that father's cortisol levels might change across pregnancy, but I wouldn't say that those studies are conclusive because they don't have those example sizes and they don't necessarily follow fathers for very long. Um, we do know that in women and moms, um, cortisol levels tend to rise towards the very end of pregnancy and um, might represent kind of a placental clock, which helps um, determine the timing of labor and birth. And so we also know, and this is something I've also studied in my research, that couples tend to kind of co-regulate or share cortisol levels, like cohabiting couples, cohabitating couples, I found, have interconnected levels of cortisol. So, one thought is that as women's cortisol levels are changing across pregnancy, fathers might be in training with or sort of co-regulating with their partners, and so you might see some similar changes happening in men. Um, but we don't really have enough good data to say for sure what's happening across the transition to parenthood. Right. Endocorregulation um, paper I also read that was really, really interesting. Um, and what struck me as really interesting was just I was wondering, like, what factors might contribute to couples who co-regulated more? Um, I wonder mm -hmm. if there's a relationship quality or... Um, yeah, just primarily their relationship quality, how that might influence their co-regulation. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I actually have found that. So in my first study of couples who showed linkage in cortisol over several days, um, it was using an example of uh, sort of middle-class dual-income couples that were recruited to a UCLA study. Um, we found that couples showed more strongly linked cortisol if they were more dissatisfied in their relationship. So relationship quality um, predicted more similar cortisol levels over three days of saliva sampling. Um, and I've actually found that in a couple of other studies as well. And one study I did with couples um, who were becoming parents, um, we found that actually um, uh, inter-partner inter aggression, so like relationship aggression, like aggressive relationship conflict, was linked with more strongly um, more strongly co-regulated cortisol as well. So it seems like right. cortisol, kind of synchrony in cortisol might reflect couples that are really reactive to each other and um, kind of highly um, responsive to each other's stress state. So it turns out, like, you might think a good quality relationship would be one where you share um, a, lot of, a lot of kind of shifts in your arousal and stress levels with your partner. But in fact, it turns out that for best relationship quality, you probably don't want to share too much of your partner's stress. It might be actually really adaptive in a relationship if partners can balance out each other's stress or have to modulate each other's stress. So that's one big take home from some of that work. Right. Um, my next question is, could you tell us more about how health disparities are exacerbated in terms of socioeconomic status? during the transition parenthood? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so one thing we know from tons and tons of research is that there is this big socioeconomic status gradient where um, health 
life expectancy and a whole variety of health outcomes are linked with poverty. So across lots of different cultures and societies, poor people tend to have shorter lifespans and more diseases than people who have more resources. And there are so many different pathways for why that might be the case, including access to health care, um, you know, behaviors like smoking and drinking, and also just chronic stress. And right. across the transition to parenthood, I think, is a really important but very neglected window of vulnerability to changes in health. Because we know that it's a time that can be stressful, that can lead to a lot of adjustment, lifestyle adjustment, um, you know, changes to exercise behavior, changes to sleep behavior, changes to mood, changes to stress and inflammation. Um, and what's interesting in the U.S. is unlike most other countries, most other industrialized countries, we don't offer any federal paid leave guaranteed for new families. So right. there are lots of, you know, especially um, low-income families in the U.S. who have to go back to work within, you know, a few days or a few weeks of having a baby. So you have this massive life disruption, and then you're, you're back to your job. Um, and you may not have a lot of control over your hours. Um, you may not have great benefits tied to that. So I think it, it really does take an unequal load. Like, it puts an unequal burden on families with poor resources when they do have to adjust with a new baby, but they're not getting the same kind of protection um, in terms of job status that higher income, more affluent couples might get. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I think you might see it as kind of like an instruction point for disparities. And, and a lot of the time when people look at health and poverty, they're looking at the very end of the lifespan. They're looking at like life expectancy and mortality right. and, and kind of the diseases of old age. But my argument would be from a public health perspective, we should be looking at times that are transitional and trans- transformational in terms of health. And I think we can think of the transition to parenthood as one such time because there is so much that's changing. Um, right, both mothers and fathers. Absolutely. Um, so now I'm going to pass um, my questions to Katrina, who's going to ask a few questions of her own. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah, so thank you again for all of that. That was very informative. And so um, now I'm going to sort of ask you more questions about academia in general and um, just your okay. experience in academia. So... Um, what do you believe to be the most rewarding aspect of academia? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I would say, like, I love um, writing. I love working with data. Um, like, I love the, the fact that as a researcher, your job is kind of discovering new knowledge. Like, you're literally finding out things that other people don't know. Right, like you're you're thinking of questions that you're curious about, you're collecting data, and then you can find the answers for yourself and you know those answers before anybody else does. So I think that sense of excitement and discovery is really important. The other thing I like is kind of having a platform to communicate. So kind of the idea that, you know, people are interested in listening to or reading um, what you have to say. So, um, you know, I think as someone who has a lot of opinions and, like, you're curious about a lot of things. Um, I really enjoy that aspect of feeling like I get to contribute to the larger conversation. Um, and then, of course, I think, like, working with students, right? And, like, students like Ekin, getting to see <laughs> as they move through 
um, their undergrad career and then end up, you know, getting accepted to amazing grad programs and go on to cool things of their own. Like, I love the chance to kind of, like, have some small role to play in development and then, you know, knowing that they're going to go off and do incredible things. Definitely. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and so, <laughs> and you also got a clinical psychology PhD, correct? Mm-hmm. All right, so then if you could change anything about the clinical psychology PhD experience for students, what would you modify? Oh, so much. Um, so, <laughs> so I think a, a clinical psych PhD is a uniquely very challenging degree Definitely. to get. Um, I've heard people say it's like getting an MD PhD in a wow. small amount of time. Um, because it's really, it's both a research degree and, you know, our students in our PhD have kind of the same expectations with research that um, students in social psych, developmental psych, or other programs have. So they still have to write a master's thesis, they still have to write a dissertation. But in addition to being a research degree, it's also a, a clinical practice degree. So our students are now having a mass, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of direct clinical work. And that they need those hours and they need those hours to be in special kinds of places doing special kinds of things um, in order to go on internship, which is kind of like the culminating year of the clinical site right. year of internship. So, um, so I would say, like, you know, there's been a lot of critique of the current internship system um, because what it means is that students do their whole PhD somewhere and then in their final year they have to apply to go somewhere else, which could be totally across the country, getting trained with totally different people, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's a competitive process and students don't know where they're going to end up. So I think it creates a lot of stress and anxiety. Um, and there have been some arguments that we could just make the internship a postdoctoral um, experience so that um, students can complete their degree. And then elect to go on internship so that they can get hours for licensure, but it's not something required for the degree. And I personally think that's a good idea because I think it's really hard on students to have to do this transition in the middle of their program um, um, to have to have so much uncertainty and cost of applying for internships. And so then for your PhD experience, um, what do you think you enjoyed the most about it, and what was the most disappointing aspect of it as well? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good question. So I would say um, I really enjoyed getting to just like learn a lot of new stuff and getting to work with people, sort of getting to know the field and getting to start my own research and kind of learn how to put together data and write papers. Um, in terms of what was disappointing, I think, um, you know, like like a lot of programs, I feel like I, I didn't quite get enough of the grounding and statistics, and I wish I was grounded in that area. Um, and I also did find, like, just like what I was saying around internship, that that was a big challenging part of my program, not just the process of applying for internships, but also just, like, accumulating hours throughout grad school in order to be competitive with right. for internships. Um, put a lot of extra pressure on the training experience and meant that I was often wearing a lot of hats and juggling a lot of different things, trying yes. to kind of um, get get my credentials as a researcher while also essentially providing clinical services at the same time. Yeah, it's so it's a lot to juggle. 
during that time. So I guess when discussing graduate school with undergraduates, what is one piece of advice that you usually give? Because I've heard a lot um, from just discussing with PhD students and discussing with uh, PIs and different professors, um, just asking them about whether they choose the university because of the program, or would you say it's more beneficial to choose a university based on the mentor that you'll be working with? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing I would say is when I'm giving advice about grad school students, often my default advice would be don't go. Um, don't go to grad school yeah. unless you're really sure that it's the only thing you want to do. Because otherwise, you're going to spend five, six years of your life, maybe even more, doing something that you're not sure you love. Definitely. And the job market isn't fantastic. So right. you really don't want to put that put in that time unless you are sure that there's really, like, unless you've tried other things and you're sure there's nothing else you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially for clinical sites, like, I would say if you're really interested in doing clinical work, um, you know, there are programs like the MSW or the MSG that you can do with just a couple of years that are very practice-oriented, or you can be working with clients much more quickly so only do a real research-based clinical PhD if you're convinced that you absolutely love the research process uh, and that, you know, again, that there's really nothing else that you would rather do. Um, and then if you've decided that you still want to do grad school after that, then I would say in terms of selection of a mentor or selection of a program, both. They both matter. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. going to a program that has some prestige and that is well-known is going to be helpful in terms of getting jobs and getting postdoctoral opportunities. Um, but if you go to a, a big-name program but, and you have an advisor who's not a nice person mm-hmm. or, you know, who's not really excited about, then you're going to have a terrible five years. Right. So it's not worth it. So I would say, like, you want to be sure that whatever program you end up at is one that you think you will find intellectually rewarding and fulfilling. Um, you have a mentor that you're comfortable, you know, meeting with once a week or once every other week for right. the next many years of your life. Um, and that they're going to be, you know, a nice person who understands work-life balance and um, is going to sort of help you, you know, have a happy experience. Yeah. So I think you're juggling a lot of different things when you're picking a program. Um, and, and it's hard to sort of, like, like get everything at once, but, um, you know, finding a mentor that you like definitely matters a lot for your basic level of happiness. Definitely, yeah, because it's a big chunk of your life, and especially such a formative time of your yeah. life as well. Yeah. Um, and I guess for now, your own experience, uh, when did you know that you wanted to pursue a PhD in clinical psychology? And do you know the exact time that you started to get involved in research and that you knew that this was something that you wanted to do for the rest of your life? I was an English major originally, mm-hmm. and I was really interested in becoming an English professor, actually, um, and, oh. and actually sort of, like, took a, took a graduate class in English because I was really interested in that and wanted to see what that was like, and I didn't love the grad class, and I also talked to a bunch of people and realized that there are absolutely no jobs oh, wow. for English PhD, so I sort of pivoted after that. Um, I added the psych major in my last couple years of college, and I took a bunch of psych classes, did a senior thesis in psych, um, and and graduated as a double major, but I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do, so I actually worked for four years, um, kind of in the business world. I was an internet startup company, and I graduated college in 1999 when 
the internet was just kind of this brave new thing. Um, so I worked for a couple of different startup companies. Um, then there was kind of like a mini crash to that industry. So I did freelance writing and, you know, lived in New York and, and sort of did a few different things and then kind of found my way back into research and being interested in grad school. Um, found somebody who would mention me to work on a research project and kind of got some experience working with her and then applied for grad school. So, so I ended up, you know, it, it took me about four or five years to figure out that that was something I was interested in doing. Right. And then when I got to grad school, I was really interested in clinical work and then sort of realized that I actually really enjoyed the research process. So kind of had some evolution in grad school as well, where I started probably more clinically oriented and by the end of my PhD, I was really wanted to do academia and was much more research-oriented. Wow, yeah. I was going to ask you if you enjoyed the clinical aspect of psychology and providing therapy to patients, because I know that a lot of um, clinical PhD students um, have that aspect of the PhD, and but it's kind of a burden, like you mentioned before. So what was your experience mm-hmm. with, with the clinical aspect? Yeah, I liked it, and I especially liked certain experiences. Like, I love doing couple therapy. Yeah. I thought um, one nice thing about couple therapy is you've got your presenting problem kind of right there in the room in front of you. You're not kind of waiting for clients to tell you what's going on. You literally have the situation sort of visible when you can work directly with the couple's communication dynamic to make improvements sort of right before your eyes. So that was one type of clinical work I enjoyed. Um, you know, I think I found clinical work to be rewarding, but also very stressful. Yep. Um, because you really have to be very on and and really attuned and really attentive. So I found it very draining. I'm um, sure. And I realized, like, I think part of it is, you know, to what extent do you have more introverted versus extroverted energy? You know, I would have called myself an extrovert, but I think after a few years of graduate school, I realized I actually really liked having long blocks of time to think and write right and so research felt like a better fit for that part of my personality that was a little more introverted oh, cool. um, whereas I, I envisioned life as a clinician and having to kind of see you know patients back to back and felt like that would be a really challenging and and kind of exhausting um, mode to operate in I think the ideal is always for people to be able to find a career that balances both but it's really hard to find that balance like most people end up more in research roles or more in clinical roles it's hard to really get to do both yeah and would you say that there are programs that are like clinical psychology programs phds that are uh either more research oriented or more clinical focused yeah definitely yeah so most of the more highly ranked programs um are are research oriented right um and that's because the faculty that teach in those programs usually have their own labs and their own programs of research, and so the grad students are really there as part of those labs and are being mentored by people that are primarily researchers who are not clinicians. So right. the program as a whole ends up really focusing on training students to do research. Um, and so one way to look at graduate programs is that uh, there's the PCSAS accreditation system so it's PCSAS, and, you know, there's APA-accredited programs, and then there's a separate accreditation, PCSAS, which is designed specifically for research-oriented clinical science programs. Um, and those tend to be, like, top 20 programs. 
because the, the more selective programs tend to be the ones that are most research oriented. Um, yeah. Another consideration is that, like clinical, more clinically oriented programs, you often have to pay tuition to attend, right? Like a research right. PhD is free; it's paid mm-hmm. for by the university. You might have to PA, you know, mm-hmm. to have some fellowship money to live on. Um, but essentially, your tuition is covered. Yep. Whereas, like a, a society or a more clinically oriented program, um, you're typically paying for that program. So it's more analogous to medical school or dental school or business school or law school, where it's like a practice-oriented degree, um, and you're paying for that degree. Right. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Thank yeah. you.